not an American Christian, right? I love this country, trust me. You're not an American son or daughter of Jesus, of God, through Jesus Christ. He has not predestined you to be a Republican or Democrat son adopted through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I'm not saying those things don't matter. I'm not saying politics don't matter. I'm not saying none of that matters. What I'm saying is that is not the defining marker of your life. You do not separate from your brothers and sisters in Christ over that. That's not, I did not plan to say that. So probably the outflow of me watching a video of people beating each other up over those things in the street, right? The, I think probably the moral of the story is don't watch the news before you get up and preach to a room full of people you don't know, right? <laughs> No, maybe you needed to hear that. Honestly, I think we probably all need to hear that right now just with the way things have been. But there's something endemic to this, this text that we're gonna draw out, but I want, I want to explain on the front end that God, if you look throughout the scriptures, throughout the pattern of the redemptive historical narrative, God has always defined his people in familial terms. That is his pattern. That is his wisdom. Not because I say so, but if you, if you begin with, and I'm gonna do just like a brief biblical theology sketch of God's people throughout the scripture. So if you'll allow me, and this, sets, this sort of sets the table for our text, right? But you begin in Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve, husband and wife, man and woman, they're together, they're family, right? You fast forward to the end of Genesis 6, God says, <laughs> the... The intentions and thoughts of man's heart are only continually evilly. Therefore, I'm going to, or only evil continually, I'm going to flood the earth. Noah, take your family and go into the ark. I'm going to preserve you and your family. And then when they come out of it, he makes a covenant with Noah and his family, right? So then you fast forward to Genesis 12 and he calls Abram. He says, Abram, I'm going to make covenant with you. I'm going to establish a relationship with you and your offspring. And he says, I'm going to make your name great on the earth and I'm gonna make your family into a great nation. But the second part of that promise is, I'm through your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God defines, he says, I'm going to make you my, you're my guy, Abraham. I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm gonna reveal myself and reaffirm my covenant with your, with your offspring throughout time and you will be my people. So then you fast forward to Exodus 19, after the Exodus. We all know the story. Abraham's descendants go to Egypt. They proliferate. God makes them into a great nation, into a great multitude. And then he sends Moses to bring them out through the Exodus, right? They go to Sinai in Exodus 19. God reaffirms the covenant with the descendants of Abraham and says, again, along familial lines, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people at Sinai. And then the rest of Exodus and Leviticus, he gives them basically the means through which they will be his people. This is what it's going to look like for you. This is how you'll live. These are the things that you'll do, so on and so forth, right? But he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that was defined for them ethnically. You are the descendants of Abraham. You're the descendants of Jacob. You're the descendants of Isaac. I reaffirm this covenant with you. Okay? So prior to that in Genesis 49, I know, Jacob, as he's dying, pronounces a blessing over all 12 of his sons, which were the beginnings of the 12 tribes of Israel. He pronounces a particular prophetic blessing over Judah, his son, and says the ruling scepter will not depart from Judah's feet. What he's saying is one day over all of God's people that God has defined this family as his people, one day the ruler of them will arise from the tribe of Judah, okay? So then covenant at Sinai, the Exodus, in Deuteronomy, right before God's going to take them into the promised land, 
He tells them two things. In Deuteronomy 4, he says, when you go into the land, be careful to keep my rules, to live the way that I've told you to live, so that the surrounding nations will know what is wisdom and who is God. He tells them, you're gonna go into this land and do the things that I've told you to do and live the way that I've told you to live. You're gonna be the people of God as I have told you to do. And through that, all the surrounding pagan nations who do not know me will know you will reflect, you will be a kingdom of priests to all the surrounding nations and they will know who God is because they don't right now. They will see the character of God and you living the way that I've told you to live when you go into the promised land. And then in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 17, he tells them, one day when you get there, you're gonna want a king and you will have the king that I shall choose for you. So you fast forward. They say, we want a king. They choose Saul. It doesn't go well. They choose the king that seems right to them, that makes sense to them. Saul was tall. He was strong. He was handsome. He seemed like the kind of guy that should be king. Well, they chose him. It didn't go well. So then God sends Samuel and he says, Samuel, now you go pick my king, which is, as we know, David. And David was from the tribe of Judah, right? David wrote this psalm. So David arises to power after he ascends the throne after Saul and Jonathan die, and he consolidates the people of God into one kingdom. A lot of people place the writing of this psalm there. They say it's either there at that time or after Absalom's rebellion. It's not really important for what we're doing today. But you see the thread and the pattern, God defining his people along familial lines, right? So, David is king in 2 Samuel 7. God comes to David and says, I'm going to make you a covenant. I will establish the throne of your offspring forever, right? So from your offspring, from Judah, all the way from Abraham through Jacob and in Genesis 49, through Sinai at Exodus 19, 2 Samuel 7, his covenant with David, I will establish the throne of your offspring forever. These people that I have defined by my law, by my terms, you will, your offspring will rule over them for forever. Well, David died and Solomon came after him and he died, right? And then Rehoboam came after him and the kingdom split and then they all went into exile. So it seemed like the promise wasn't fulfilled, okay? So if you open up Matthew to the first page, don't do that. The gospel of Matthew, the very first page of the New Testament begins with the words, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, That is Matthew looking back across the expanse of God's covenant relationship with Israel throughout the Old Testament and saying Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all these covenant promises. As God defined his people according to the genealogy of Abraham in the Old Testament, now he defines his people according to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why would you spend five minutes going over all that? Because if you read the first verse of Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, that leaves very undefined who those brothers are in that verse. But the reality is, is what it meant for David correlates directly for us as the body of Christ. Now, I could have just said that, right? But it's very important that you understand that the New Testament church is the expression of God's people And we're gonna get through this and as I unpack this text, it's gonna make a lot more sense. We are not happenstance. The thing that we're doing here is not just something culturally that we developed. It's not our idea. We are the people of God in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That song that we sang, and I came out of that grave. Well, everybody that came out of that grave, that's what you are. But that also means that you are adopted. That's why I quoted Ephesians 1. So if you're a Christian, 
You are adopted into a family. You have brothers and sisters. This is not, I don't know any of you. You are not just people that worship the same God that I worship. We will be in eternity for, forever together. We either believe that or we don't. You are my brothers and my sisters, Right? It's a very important connection to make. So I'm going to preach Psalm 133. I'm gonna explain it within its context as David meant it when he wrote it, but I'm going to apply it to our context. It's important that you get the theological framework within which that is done because otherwise it's just words. How pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Nobody's gonna argue in that. Nobody's gonna get up here and say, actually, you know what? I think it's better when we all fight and argue, right? But there is a... Weight, there's a doctrinal weight to what David says in the psalm that if understood properly, and if the Lord will enable me and loose my tongue to speak even faster, well, if he'll loose my tongue to actually explain it, then praise God. So let's go. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you that you have called us out of our graves. I thank you that you have, you have swallowed up death, that you have conquered the mess that we have made of this world, Lord, and you have redeemed us unto yourself. I thank you that according to your perp the purpose of your will, you have predestined us as sons and daughters for adoption to yourself. You've adopted us. You came to our orphanage of death and you said, give me that one and give me that one and give me that one and called us out and took us to live with you and made us your sons and your daughters. I thank you for your tremendous grace in that. I thank you for your tremendous mercy in that. I pray that you will enable me to reflect that in the writings of your servant David today. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, you will enable our hearts to hear it. I pray that you will remove me from it. I confess that my words can accomplish nothing here. Let your word go forth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 133, the structure is very simple. There's only three verses. David makes a declarative statement, like this is good and pleasant. Look, and he starts with, behold, behold, this is good and pleasant. Then he has two analogous descriptions, two descriptions that are analogy. He says, I'm going to tell you something that's true, and then I'm going to describe what that is by these two analogies, and then there's a grounding clause in the, bat in the last part of verse three, and that's how we're gonna move through it. So let's get to it. I'm excited if you can't tell. Starbucks had nothing to do with that. Psalm 133, verse one. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So as I just indicated, behold, the fact that the verse starts with that, don't gloss over it. That's David saying, look, get your attention. I'm about to make a declarative claim on your life. That's when David starts what we translate to behold there. That's David saying, pay attention. I'm about to make a claim on you, reader or hearer. If it was somebody hearing this song sung, if it's us reading this psalm, he's like, I'm about to say something, declare that something is true that makes a claim on your life. Pay attention. That's what David's saying. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So the declaration is that it's good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity, pretty simple. Again, it would be really strange if he was like, look how good it is when we fight and kill each other, right? When we fight in the streets. But what's in David's mind, and I've alluded to this already, in his mind, what is the definition of brothers? Who is he talking about? Because he says what's good is that when brothers dwell together in unity. Side note, in their culture, when speaking royally, they spoke in the masculine tense. So when he says brothers here, he means brothers and sisters. He means all of us. He's not just talking about men in Israel. Like we would use, like I said, Acts 29, or Greenbrier was a sister church. We used that in the feminine tense in our language, in their tense. 
So don't be thrown off by brothers there. He means everybody. But what is that in David's mind? He's not, he obviously clearly doesn't mean just he and his biological brothers. He's talking about fellow partakers of God's covenant. Everything that I just laid out in their mind, when David says brothers, he's talking about not only the person, like his first cousin that probably served in the temple court, he's talking about some random guy from Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh, like a hundred miles away that he doesn't know that, yeah, they're like 37th cousins to some degree, but they didn't really see each other familiarly at, that, at this point. That guy in Manasseh or over in the tribe of Dan, way away, he didn't look at that guy as like his, necessarily his family. They all understood that they came from the same man. But the defining familial, char- familial characteristic in their culture was the covenant of God to them that God chose their forefather and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That bound them together. That's why David, a Judahite, would look at random Joe from Manasseh and say, you are my brother. Or some random lady from Dan and say, you are my sister. Because their relation to one another was defined by how God had defined them. God came to their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and said, here I am, I am God, and you will be my people, right? So when David says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, it's very important not to gloss over that word. He is talking about when the covenant people of God dwell together in unity. What's the obvious correlation to that? For us, I just drew that out for this very reason because everything he says after this, there's some incredible imagery and I can't wait to get to that. But everything that he says in this Psalm applies to us hinging on that word brothers because if David means just his biological brother or a second cousin down the street, then that has nothing to do with any of us because we're not related, are we? I don't know where you came from. But if he's talking about the covenant people of God, which he is, that correlates directly to us because we are the fulfillment of the covenant people of God in Christ Jesus. So this psalm that was written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came and walked the earth applies to us. So the point is, brothers in David's mind are defined as his fellow partakers of the covenant. When he says brothers, that's what he means. And I will remind you, again, I'm gonna beat this horse. Probably gonna be sick of me saying it before I'm over with the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ predestined us for adoption as sons to himself through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. We are brothers, we are sisters. So to sum up the point, it's a very simple point that David makes here. Behold, how good and pleasant. Look how good it is when fellow partakers of God's covenant blessing dwell together in unity. That's a New Testament summation, for lack of a better term, of David, if you'll allow me, I'm not adding to or taking from the scriptures, but if you'll allow me the liberty to say, how would David write this to us today? He would say, look how good it is when fellow partakers of God's covenant blessing in Jesus Christ dwell together in unity, right? Does that, does that track? Does that make sense? So, that's what he says. Look how good it is when, we're, when we are united. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you're in Christ Jesus, we are fellow partakers of his grace, of the grace of God. In John 15, I think it is, in John when he says, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant, this is my blood of the new covenant, like we're all partakers of that. We're gonna take communion. We are brothers and sisters. 
So it's good when we, when we dwell together in unity, right? All right. So now he moves and he says it's like two things. Verse two. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. I had just a fleeting thought this week. I'm like, I'm gonna ask for a volunteer and I'm gonna pour a bottle of olive oil down their head and just see what goes, see, what, see where it goes from there. See what happens. Get run out. It's kind of a gross analogy if you don't understand it. Talking about his beard, like oil in his beard. Anyway, he says covenant unity, and I define it that way because he says brothers, all hinges on that. That's who, what he's talking about. Everything he says in the psalm is based on who are brothers in his mind. Covenant unity is like, he says, when brothers dwell together in unity, it is like precious oil on the head. So it is like precious oil. Let's talk about that oil. This is a reference to the consecration of Aaron as high priest in Exodus 20, 29, 28, 29, and 30. In Exodus 28, God gives Moses very particular instructions about how to fashion Aaron's garb that he would wear as high priest. They're at Sinai. God has just reaffirmed the covenant with them after the Exodus. The smoke and the fire comes down on the mountain and Moses goes up and you know all that crazy stuff happens, right? Well, God tells Moses, hey, your brother Aaron's gonna be my high priest in chapter 28, he gives him instructions on how to make his high priestly garb, and it is very detailed. It is very intricate. It is very unlike anything anyone else wore in those days. In chapter 29, it gives us the story, the narrative of, of how Moses performed the ceremony of consecrating Aaron, and it involved taking and putting him in these clothes that God had told him to make, anointing him with the anointing oil. And then in chapter 30, it's tied back in. It goes back and explains it's God giving Moses the instructions for how to make this anointing oil. So this oil, and that oil is what David is referencing here. But that oil was made from, it was a mix of cinnamon and myrrh and other spices, a little bit of the oil, like olive oil. There's all this different stuff. God gives him this this recipe, for lack of a better term, but it was mixed, and the things in it gave it a very particular aroma. So let's get the picture here, because this is what David's trying to get across to us. So in Exodus 28, God says, Moses, make this very intricate, very, I can't overemphasize how how deliberately made this this clothing was. He says, make this stuff and then put it on your brother and pour this anointing oil on his head. So I don't don't really have time to unpack it, but oil throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the Levitical rites, emphasizes and represents the work of the Holy Spirit. Like I wish, if you have questions about that, email Jamie. (laughs) I won't be here this week, I won't be here next week. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's always representative of the work of the Holy Spirit throughout those rites. I could give you examples from Leviticus, but we don't have time. So this oil, David says, when brothers dwell together in unity, it is like the oil that Moses poured on Aaron's head. The oil represents the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Like I, I want you to fully get the, the analogy David is making. The oil represents... Brothers dwelling in unity is like the oil 
that represents the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in turning a man into a priest unto God, like he did Aaron. So get the picture, all right? You've got a million plus people out in the middle of the desert. They probably didn't smell great. They didn't have running water. They didn't have hot showers. They all were probably, their clothing, I'm sure, represented the time that they lived in. They all were dressed before this process, right? Aaron was Moses' partner. God calls Moses and says, hey, go to Pharaoh. And Moses is like, I'm not really good at talking to people. He's like, well, take your brother Aaron with you, right? So Aaron is Moses' partner in leading them out of Egypt throughout the Exodus. But, then, but he's dressed like the rest of them are. He smells like the rest of them do. Everything about him is common. Everything about him is like everyone else. And then God says, take your brother, put this ridiculously designed clothing on him. Give him clothes that are unlike everyone else's. And then pour this oil on him that will, get, that will bring an aroma on him that will indicate the fact that I have chosen this man for my service. I have anointed this man. When Aaron walked through the camp, they smelled it. They knew that aroma, that pleasing aroma, it smelled good to them. They probably all smelled like B.O. He smelled like cinnamon and myrrh. And they're like, that aroma indicated to them the presence of God and the choosing of God of this man, the consecration of this man to mediate between them and God. That meant that the presence of God, this indicated this is the man that will be in the presence of God on our behalf. God took a man that smelled, that was wearing like normal wilderness clothing and completely put new clothes on him, said, no, this is what you dress like now. This is what you smell like now. David is saying when we, fellow partakers of the covenant blessing in Jesus Christ, when we dwell in unity, it is like that oil, that pleasing aroma. That is the pleasing aroma of the Holy Spirit in our midst to the world around us. He's saying it is like that oil that got poured on Aaron's head. That is what it is like for us when we love one another, when we forgive one another, when we have grace for one another, when we count not offenses against one another. That is the pleasing aroma. That is the sanctifying work, the consecrating work of the Holy Spirit and God's people. So David gives them this word picture and they would have known exactly, I mean, they would have gotten all the references and all that. For us, we got to think about it and study it. You're like, well, I've been wearing deodorant. I smell pretty good already. Spiritually, is that not what the Lord has done for all of us? Took our rags off, put on us his robe, poured the Holy Spirit onto us to save us and to sanctify us. He's saying when we are in unity, when the people of God, that's why I referenced Deuteronomy 4 when God tells them before they go into the land, he's like, go live the way that I've told you to live and if you do that, everyone will know what is wisdom and who is God. All the Old Testament law, all the things that David is referencing in this one little picture were all designed, God's sovereign design was to take this people and through them living the way that he told them to live to reflect the character and the nature of who he is to the pagan world that did not know him. David is saying our unity is like that oil going on Aaron's head right in the midst of God giving all of this to them. <laughs> He's saying it's like that oil. So before I move on, to summarize this, to draw the analogy that David makes and apply it to our New Testament context, it is in and through our being defined 
by covenant unity that the Holy Spirit consecrates and sanctifies us. Now, what does that mean? Why do I use that term to find? It's what I was getting at earlier. Um, it's why I belabor the point over the word brothers. If we don't understand what Paul really means when he says that we are adopted as sons and daughters, when that's just words, like we don't see the deliberate nature of the Holy Spirit having Paul use that word to explain to us what he's done in our hearts, then this is just a, this is a loose association that we have. This, is, this might as well be like, I don't know, whatever social club. I was gonna, a bunch of like, I was gonna say Kiwanis, but I think that's like an 80s thing, right? Kiwanis club, is that still, is that still a thing? Um, when we don't understand, when we are not defined by the fact that through the work and the person and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if the Holy Spirit has saved us, we are called into a family. We are called to be a family, to reflect the nature of God in living the way that he has told us to live. If we don't understand that association, then this falls apart. So that's why I use the word define. It is in and through our being defined by covenant unity. Here's what I mean. If we're not defined by that relationship, if our relation to one another is not defined by our relation to God, then there's no need for me to forgive you. I'll just leave. There's no need for me to extend grace to you. I'll just tell you to get lost. I'll just go find another church. I mean, that never happens in our culture, right? You know? So, and, and to be honest with you, understanding, you know, John Piper always says that doctrine's not for the head, but for the heart. So when I use words like theology and doctrine, I don't mean just studying, reading a book, but understanding doctrinally what we are to one another, what we are to be to one another, how the Holy Spirit defines us, how God defines us, how the scripture defines what the church is. Understanding that, being defined by that is the only thing that keeps us from just saying, you know what, I don't really like you anymore, so I'm out. From disassociating, from walling off, which are all things that I, dude, I fight. If I, have, if I leave myself enough time, I'm gonna talk about that. I fight that, we all fight that. So, that's the picture. David says, when brothers dwell together in unity, it is like that precious oil, that pleasing aroma of the Holy Spirit poured out on Aaron when God redefined him and said, you are my priest. 133, or uh, verse three. The second picture, he says, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. When brothers dwell together in unity, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, this is a difficult word picture. There's a lot, there's a little bit of a debate about what David, what David means here because Mount Hermon is located in the northeastern part of what we would call geographical Israel now. But it's east of the Jordan, it's north. And so in David's time, it was considered part of, in terms of what their territory was, it was geographically in the, the land of promise. It was in what was geographically controlled by Israel. But he says it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And Zion is a concept and an actual location that was in southern Israel around Jerusalem, right? So a lot of people debate about whether or not David is saying that Hermon is part of the mountains of Zion or the other thing, which is what I'm gonna say. It's not really important, but Mount Hermon is the highest point in Israel. 
It's the highest point. It's visible throughout all of northern Israel, and it is known for a number of things. One, there are lots of natural springs at its base that feed the Jordan River. It's known for plentiful rains because it's in the northern part of the country in its elevation, but it's known for its ridiculous amount of dew. Because of its elevation, because of the amount of rain and dew and water that is present there, Mount Hermon is known for its wildlife, for its flourishing in the part of the world where that's not necessarily plentiful everywhere. So the word picture that I believe David is getting at is that when brothers dwell together in unity, it is like the dew that falls on Mount Hermon that flourishes, that enriches, that causes things to be green and to thrive. He's saying it is like that dew falling on the mountains of Zion. Now, Zion is a concept I don't really have time to unpack, but essentially the concept of Zion is the place where God's presence dwells with God's people. They understood that in and around Jerusalem. Eventually the temple was there, but David's sacrificial site, in in the book of Samuel, David captures the fortress of Zion, which was a Jebusite fortress around what is now Jerusalem on the hills that surround Jerusalem. So the mountains of Zion are considered, is usually used to reference the hills and the mountains around what is now Jerusalem, where eventually the temple was, where the presence of God dwelt with them, right? What David is saying is like, when we dwell in unity... It is like that dew, which is plentiful and enlivens and enriches and is on this mountain that's really tall and is really green and there's lots of vegetation falling on these mountains where it's a little drier and dustier. He's saying it's like that dew. When we do this, it's like that dew falling here. So what is dew? Do we cause that? Do I call, did I wake up this morning and call the dew, for, the dew forth to the ground? Do I call water out to feed my grass? Do I get on my, stand on my back porch and say, all right, dew, formulate and make my grass green? No, it's God-given. It is a picture of the grace of God. Mount Zion is where God's people dwell. It's where his presence dwells with his people. Zion was the place where they called the people of God to come together and the presence of God would dwell with them and he would bless them. David is saying when we're in unity, it is like the dew that happens up there happening here, the grace of God given to us. Our unity is a gift. It is a work of the Holy Spirit that is given to us. That is the picture. He's saying brothers dwelling in unity is like dew. You don't make dew. You don't cause it. It is something that God gives you for your flourishing. He's saying God gives you dew to make your plants grow. Us dwelling in unity is like God giving, is like the Holy Spirit making us grow, making us thrive, making the church thrive, making the church be green and lively. It is in our unity that we are fed, that we are healthy, that we reflect the character and the nature of God, that the Holy Spirit comes in and sanctifies us. David's saying our unity is like dew, which is weird, but to them it made total sense because they were agrarian. Like dew to them was life-giving. It was utterly necessary, especially in the part of the world where they lived. Our unity, David is saying our unity, brothers dwelling together in unity is not man-made, but God-given. So to summarize and apply to our context, 
It is through our consecration, to tie it all together, it is through our consecration by the Holy Spirit, that oil picture, that God creates in us hearts that want to love one another and do life together and to forgive one another and to do the hard thing. Let's just say it. It ain't easy. You get in, you dig in to do life with people, with other believers, you start dealing with sin and relational difficulties and all the other things that we all have. It's not, it's not easy. What David's saying is, but when it happens, when you are defined as God's family, when your relation to one another is defined by your relation to the Lord, it is like the dew that God gives on Mount Hermon and it makes everything thrive. It makes everything in the church thrive. Zion is archetypal of the church. In the New Testament, I failed to say that. I really just wanted to use that word. In the Old Testament context, Zion was where the people of God, hear this, where the people of God gathered and came together to worship God and his presence dwelt among them. That is us now. He's saying when we're in unity, it's like God giving dew on the mountains. Just like it would, he's saying, what would happen if the dew of Hermon fell on the mountains of Zion? That's what happens when we dwell in unity. That makes sense. It is through our consecration by the Holy Spirit that God creates in us hearts that want to love and dwell together. And then the last part of verse three, four, there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Where? For there. The word that we translate to the conjunctive, therefore, that indicates that what he says here directly relates to what he just said, logically. He's saying, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Where? In Zion, where his people come together to worship him, where his presence dwells with them, he's saying, he gives this picture that says, our unity is like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion and because that, that's where God commands the blessing life forevermore. God has commanded the blessing of his grace in the church, in the work of Jesus Christ, in the gospel going forward, in our coming together to be the people of God, to reflect on his work on our behalf, to be defined by his covenant. That is where God has commanded the blessing life forevermore. This is not Kiwanis Club. This ain't the country club. I, I love golf, sorry. I'm not like preaching to people, I love golf. This ain't the gym. I'm out of analogies. I probably need to get out more. This is not a loose association. We are a family. David is saying, there God has commanded the blessing. So when we're in unity, it's like that dew falling. Why? Because there God has commanded the blessing. Our unity, our love, the love of Jesus wrought in us, shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit as we be the family of God, not just talk about it, not just quote scriptures, as we be the family of God. I realize grammatically that's not right. But as we are the family of God, as we actually do it, the rest of the world is sees the character of God. That's why I tied it all the way through the covenants, all the way back to Abraham, all the way to Sinai, all the way to Deuteronomy 4. Us living now in unity, not bearing do when we are bearing with one another, when we are not counting offenses against one another, 
We reflect the character and the nature of the gospel of our God to the world around us, just like ethnic Israel, the family back then did. Is the connection clear? He says, covenant unity is like the plentiful dew of Hermon falling on the mountains. That is where God has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. So, very quickly, gone a little longer than I wanted to, but very quickly, I have a question. Has being called into the family of God defined you, or are you still defined by our culture? I'm gonna narrow that down a little bit. Sort of a sub-question to that question. Have you fully understood that the church now represents the covenant people of God in Christ? Like, I know I beat that horse to death today. And I know we preach it. I know, I know I don't know you, but I know doctrinally what this church is. I know you hear that. I know you know it. But have you fully understood that? Like, the church is not something you go to. It's not something that you consume it's not even something that you're, you're just a member of. The church of Jesus Christ is a family. And we are called to see each other that way. Um, have you fully understood that? And if you have fully understood it, have you fully accepted it? <laughs> That's the hard part. That's the hard part. I mean, I grew up with all sorts of labels, you know, that I used to define myself. I still fight that. I have a very particular political view of our country and where we are right now. I have a very defined view of COVID and what it is and what it isn't. That doesn't define me. And it's certainly not how I'm supposed to define you. I'm not saying those things don't matter. I'm just saying that the highest thing in our identity should be that we are called as the family of God. Have you fully accepted that the church now represents the covenant people of God and Christ? If the testimony of your heart is no, I would ask you to pray. Search out the scriptures and ask the Lord to reveal to you where you're resistant to that reality. That's what I prayed for myself this morning. Seriously. Um, have you fully understood, and this is another sub-question, have you fully understood that salvation is not merely the acceptance of the work of Christ in your head. What salvation actually is, is God working to adopt you into his family. Like if you're here and you're saved, that's because God said he came to the orphanage called sin and death and said, you, you're in my family now. I mean, I know that we understand grace that none of us did anything to deserve that, but do we understand that picture that Paul uses? In Ephesians, have you fully accepted that? That, and I don't assume that you haven't. I, these are just the questions that I think the Lord put on my heart for this sermon. Have you fully accepted that? That salvation is not, well, I was going to hell and now I know Jesus, so I'm not, and that's fantastic. So I'm, I guess I'm gonna go to this church and I'm gonna check it out and see, see if I like the music, see if I like the preaching. Um, Man, that's harsh. I'm not trying to be harsh with you guys. I'm really not, I'd love to come in here and just talk about how much Jesus loves us. He does. Have you fully accepted that, though, that salvation is being adopted into a family? Well, guess what? I used the, the picture earlier. If you've got a kid in an orphanage in Kenya and a kid in an orphanage in Detroit, guess what? They don't get the letter that says, hey, the Smith family has adopted you and America has adopted you. And they're like, oh, that's cool. 
Just throw the letter out and go on living and, and understanding who they are the same way. Their whole world. We have a family. Their whole world changes. We have a family in our, in our body. They have no kids. And as far as I understand, I don't think there's a medical reason. I think they just haven't had kids yet. They just went to Columbia and adopted three kids that were in a very, very dire situation. I, I met them for the first time the other night. Those kids, their entire life has changed. Who they are how they understand themselves to be, right down from their name on a piece of paper to who they think they are, like what they see, how they relate to the world around them has completely changed. They are no longer so-and-so in a poor orphanage in Columbia. They are so-and-so Cleary, now a part of this family. That's what salvation is. That's what we are. Have you fully accepted that? Because it is in being fully defined by that that unity is possible. It is out of that understanding that our unity comes, right? Has being called into the family of God defined you or are you still defined by our culture? I have no reason to bear with, you know, Paul says that a lot, bear with one another. I have no reason to bear with my fellow elders or the families in my church or the relationships that are difficult within my body if this is an organization that we all are a part of, if the church is an organization that I join because Jesus did something for me 2,000 years ago. But if I really get face-to-face and bear down on what the scriptures teach, that we are brothers and sisters, as David says it in this psalm, we are adopted into a family. I'm adopted into a family That is the reason, that is the motivation for me bearing with and forgiving and loving and fighting for that because it is a fight. I'm gonna give you a very quick example of that and then I'll be done, I'll shut up. So there's a a family, a couple in our church and I can say this because there's no way they're ever gonna watch this. I'm not gonna use their names. Um, But for lack of a bit, I'm not gonna go through the whole thing but uh, our relationship not necessarily is bad, has not been bad. Um, It's just not been good. You understand what I mean? Sometimes you, I mean, there are things that have happened, but you, it's kind of like you have um, sort of tension, relational tension with people. And if you're believers, you kind of forgive one another, but you just kind of also leave it to where it's just like, our relationship's not, there's no relationship here, but we're both comfortable with that. Like we're not mad at each other anymore, but we're comfortable with the fact that we have no relationship. If you guys identify with that, and I think we do that in life a lot, um, but it happens in the church too. And so over the years, that has happened with a particular couple. And I pray for them a lot because um, I do love them. I was just very happy not having any sort of interaction with them. I was very comfortable with that. I was enjoying it actually, to be honest with you. Um, and I pray for them a lot and I came under conviction for that. And I just kind of began praying like, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do here? And through a series of events, some of which were very spiritual and some of which were very unspiritual. And I use that in those terms because everything is spiritual, right? The Lord sovereign. God revealed to me, he really impressed upon me, I want you to sit these people down and I want you to tell them that you love them and I want you to tell them how you feel about them. And I don't want to do that. And so, but then I did. So I reached out to them. I was like, hey guys, you know, I asked them a question that was kind of a, a barometer, a check, a thermometer check on our relationship. And they were like, no, nah, we're good. Like, we're good. We don't, there's nothing for us to really deal with. And they were right, but I just, I felt like the Lord was like, no, you cannot leave this alone. 
So I, I asked them, I was like, all right, I know this makes no sense to you. And they even said this much. So like, this makes no sense to us. I was like, I know this makes no sense to you, but can we just sit down? I just got some things I need to say to you. And I did, we did. And I told them that I loved them. I told them that um, pretty much everything in this psalm. And I walked, I walked out of that. They could be somewhere thinking that I'm crazy. I walked out of that conversation with a love and an affection for two people that I cannot explain that was not there beforehand. Literally, I walked in the room feeling one way, I walked out of the room feeling another, and I've since been burdened to pray, particularly for the husband, and I'm not gonna get into it, in some very specific ways. That is that oil. I didn't earn that, I didn't create that, that's that do, I didn't call that forward. The Lord told me to do that, and I was obedient. But I got to a point where the Lord said, this is your brother and your sister. You either deal with that or you don't.